Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Avery Wyman, and I am the host of this episode of the New Books Network series in Jewish Studies. Today, I'll be speaking with Jan Rybach about his latest book, Everyday Zionism in East Central Europe, Nation Building in War and Revolution, 1914 to 1920, which he published this year in 2021 with Oxford University Press. Rybach earned his bachelor's and his master's degrees in history from the University of Salzburg and completed his doctorate in, the, in history at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. Before attending university, he was a social worker for folks with disabilities. He has held numerous fellowships, including at Pauline, the Museum for the History of Polish Jews in Warsaw, and at New York University, as well as a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of York. Currently, he is the Early Career Fellow at the Birkbeck Institute for the Study of Anti-Semitism at the University of London. I should also add that Jan and I are old friends. We, made, we met some summers ago studying Hebrew in an old pond in Haifa when he was still doing his PhD at EUI and when this project was still a dissertation. Of course, that just makes it all the more of a delight to be able to do this podcast now that years later, the research is a full-fledged book. On the subject of the book, Everyday Zionism in East Central Europe is an insightful, original, and beautifully woven contribution that examines Zionism from a novel perspective, not as an ideology, but as a social function. The focus is not the merit or contours of Zionist ideas, but rather the deeds of rank-and-file Zionist activists as they sought to meet the needs of Jews on the ground. Amid the often hellish landscape of the First World War and the radical political changes of the wartime and interwar periods, it was local Zionists' ability to provide struggling Jews with desperately needed welfare, education, and self-defense that transformed Zionism from a rather eclectic ideology for elites and the most committed of believers into a popular and powerful mass movement. It was not the shekel fundraising, the proliferation of newspapers, or tactful diplomacy that stirred the Jewish population and made Zionism a competitive option, so much as it was feeding hot meals to Jews who were starving because of the war-induced food shortages, offering Jewish youth high-quality education and social infrastructure in times of uncertainty and displacement, or physically defending Jewish lives during the unprecedentedly violent waves of pogroms that occurred during the First World War and the Russian Civil War. While Zionism did animate how activists phrased their work, it was the abstract and malleable principles of Jewish nationhood, self-determination, and agency that mattered more than the literal goals of mass emigration or the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine or Eretz Israel. Put differently, for East Central European Zionists of this period, the most important parts of Zionism did not necessarily or even encourage movement out of Europe. The nation that nat- or the question that naturally follows is, what exactly was the nature of the nation that these Zionist activists built? What is the nation-building enterprise that the title of this book refers to? 
from the perspective laid out in this book, Zionism as a means of organizing Jews into a population with collective consciousness and aspirations played a significant role in strengthening the roots of Jewish nationhood in Europe, where the Jews of East Central Europe already were. This fascinating tension, one of the one of the many great insights of the book, keys into a significant ascendant trend amongst today's historians of writing not Zionist histories, but histories of Zionism. Here, Zionism is not a special teleological guide that dictates how history should be told, but rather one of the several options available to Jews, whose contingent success reflected the conditions of a particular time and place. And with that short introduction, Dr. Rybach, Jan, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Of course. So uh, let's start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, What is your background and how did you get started on this project? Well, as you mentioned before, my actual background um, many, many years ago is actually as a social worker. And I worked for many years and I enjoyed this work and working with people with special needs. And eventually then there was a turnaround and I decided to study history. And over the years, I came more and more to be interested in originally more um, the history of the labor movement and these fundamental transformations that happened uh, in Europe, but also throughout the world in the aftermath of the First World War with the Russian Revolution and subsequent revolutionary waves in Europe. And I originally wanted to work on the more on the smaller um, group that in this period as well was affected by the dual promises, if you will, of national liberation on the one side and um, uh, revolutionary emancipation on the other. That was Poaletion, so the socialist Zionist movement, which split in the aftermath of these um, events um, over questions of revolution or, or, or nation. And when I did research on that um, many years ago for my MA, um, I I came to that research thinking about them alongside the lines of the labor movement in, in Austria or in Germany or in Italy or in France and so many other places that split in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. And they themselves thought about it that way, which I found very interesting. But reading through the sources, it became obvious that there were so many other questions involved. Obviously, of course, because of a... Um, a national movement and a socialist movement at the same time that had not an obvious relation to a specific territory like um, uh, Polish nationalists, for example, or Czech nationalists. Um, So, and many other questions that were involved there that made the entire story so much more complicated and also then so much more interesting. And then I thought for the PhD, let's expand that. Let's look in a more broader sense at this movement, at the Zionist movement, and what it does during the First World War, and how it manages to become such a powerful and such a dominant, in many respects, movement in the interwar period or in the aftermath of the First World War. And to me, one of the big puzzles that I, when I first dealt with this research, the first big puzzles that I that I um, was dealing with was this mismatch between the very, very small numbers of people who actually went to Palestine and Israel and the quite uh, that's and and the number of of members in the organization who subscribed to a national program that included um, emigration um, to Palestine 
and this massive mismatch between these two numbers. So the question was for me, what what are the what are all those people who are not going up to the land? What are they doing in all their spare time? What are they doing in Europe? What um what does Zionism mean for them, and how are they making sense of it? First of all, for them, and then naturally, of course, for the wider Jewish communities. And this is what brought me. Um, to this book and to to questioning some of the some of the assumptions and and uh, ideas that we have and understandings that we have of how Zionism came to be uh, came to uh, attain such a prominent place in Jewish social and political life after the First World War. Right, and then on a technical level of doing the research, I mean, two of the things that I found my most impressive about this book is the sheer number of archives that you used, and also the languages that you had to be able to you or the, the languages that you had to know in order to be able to work in these archives. So from the bibliography at the back, I counted like 30 archives on three continents in at least seven or eight languages, which is one, wow, like incredible. But the question is, what was this research like, the training, and how is it to go around to all these different archives? Going around in different archives was the most enjoyable part of the PhD, alongside with meeting fellow researchers and, um, and, and colleagues and so on. So one of the one of the ideas was that we, as this PhD originally first developed towards a more social history of the Zionist movement, one of the ideas that I had was we can't find all the answers in the central archives um, and in the national archives. So especially if you um, look in the in the case of Poland, which um, takes a very prominent place within. The book that I went to a number of um, more provincial. So I, I went way beyond uh, Warsaw itself. And I think this is important and I think this gives a different perspective to it because the perspective from uh, Przemysl, for example, is often very different than uh, from, from Warsaw. Naturally, in not only because of the Jewish history of the 20th century, but also uh, because of the way of uh, how institutions are run, it's necessary um, to travel quite a lot for for um, gathering this um, this uh, this data to gathering all the archival documents that are spread out um, throughout the world of course um, I spent quite a lot of time in Israel and I enjoyed my time there very much and in, uh, in uh, with the, working with the wonderful colleagues and incredibly supportive uh, colleagues in uh, the archives in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv but also in New York at Evo, for example, and in uh, in various uh, Polish archives and in Austria and in Germany and so on. Um, and I, I really enjoyed this archival research. It has this de- de- detect, kind of detective um, aspect to it. So you first you uh, don't really know what happened and then you go deeper and deeper into it and find more and more <laughs> clues and ideas and the picture becomes more and more complicated. And I think this is uh, one of the contributions that I tried to make um, with the book is that, well, it's much more complicated than it um, it uh, used to look before that. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we just covered something that I found very pre- impressive in a technical sense as a historian who's kind of flabbergasted by the number of archives and the languages that you had to use. But from a more um, poetic and humanistic perspective, I was also consistently delighted by the evocative and illustrative details that you found in the archive and that you were able to put in the book. And so I want to quickly read two of my favorite examples of these kind of just great detail moments. Um, The first comes pretty early on in the book in the context of performances of imperial loyalty in 1914, in the very early stages of the First World War. 
you wrote um, in Vienna, Robert Stricker, leader of the Zionist movement in Western Austria and an elected member of the Viennese Jewish Community Board, fell fully in line with the general atmosphere of patriotic mobilization when he suggested that the Kultusgemeinde should instruct all rabbis to tell women not to wear jewelry in public. As such, as in such period, serious and periodic patriotic times, Stricker argued, this would give completely the wrong impression. Um, and the second example that I want to highlight comes about midway through the book in the context of Zionist women taking on an increasingly important role in the underground activism. Um, here you wrote, the shift in activism was also felt among Zionist youth in Prague. Georg, a high school student and a member of the scout movement Blue Weiss, um, noted in his diary in 1916 that as more and more of his pals were drafted into the army, girls gained an important role. He had ambiguous feelings about this. Arthur, the group's leader, emphasized that now that the girls will participate more, which many did not like, since it looks like everything will be in hands of the girls. Uh, for early December, his local branch of Blue Vice therefore scheduled an urgent meeting with the subject, how do we position ourselves in front of the girls? The discussion did not attract many participants. Georg later learned that it could actually be quite nice to spend time with girls, especially when, towards the end of the year, the mixed group went on a short trip to Tiplishunau in the northern Bohemian mountains to enjoy the snow. There, he rode on a sleigh with Lisa from his group and later walked back with her to the train station. So these are just the kind of details that really just, they make history sing. And so the question is, how did you find these anecdotes in the archive and how did you decide what to use? Uh, so, so let me let me lay to comment a bit on, on, on both of these quotes because I think they, they capture um, very important moments in this story. Um, finding them, uh, most of them was really accidental uh, in many respects. So they some at some point show up uh, amongst the papers and it's like every historian knows this hooray moment when you find uh, something like that that gives um, a real flavor um, to the text. Um, I, I did look especially, I mean, the, the case of Georg uh, Launert, the case from Prague, um, is from a diary. So I, I did um, invest quite a lot of energy in finding uh, private sources and especially diaries. You will um, see that throughout the book, especially um, by young people. Um, and also um, quite a few di uh, diaries by young women. Which I think uh, whose voices are in incredibly important in this um, in this story of politicization of especially young Jews throughout uh, Eastern and Central Europe in this period. Um, uh, on, on the two comments themselves, so I think they both reflect something on Jewish political activism and Zionism in this period that is evident in many social and political movements at the time. So the first being this integration into a general war effort and a general patriotic mobilization of society, where then suddenly the private, like what you wear, how do you perform in public and so on, becomes a much more public uh, aspect to it. So what you wear that you shouldn't wear jewelry, um, for example. And this is something that we can observe um, throughout society in, in all war um, in all war-waging countries at the time, um, only we can only—it's enough to look at some of the wartime propaganda, especially directed against women, how they should um, perform in this time. And it shows how the Zionist activists were on the one side, how they were how they were integrated into this general um, social experience of the time. So they were not outside of it; they didn't uh, run their own show. 
uh, they were affected by by not only by the politics, but uh, which is obvious, but also by 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 the moods and the, the changing um, atmosphere in society, and they reflect quite a lot. Um, in their own way and in their own language and in, with their own ideas and with their own conclusions about uh, what is happening in, so- in, in society at large. And one of this is um, the uh, comment by Stricker, um, and, but this could be um, extended um, to quite a few others. The other um, thing is that, of course, the First World War brings with the, the recruitment of, uh, of so many men uh, especially young men, uh, to the front brings a situation which women and especially young women's social and political activism becomes much more important. And I hope we have a chance to talk about this a little bit more later. Uh, but this is something that that can be observed in the labor movement. This can be uh, observed in, in religious movements um, uh, of, of all sorts, in social movements that in a way this vacuum is filled uh, by women and uh, they become, uh, they take on an ever more prominent and ever more important uh, role in uh, in these uh, political uh, movements, be it trade unions or be it um, Zionist uh, youth movements. But uh, we absolutely will talk more about women's roles and kind of how this mass mobilization, the transformation of Zionism into a mass movement brings women to the forefront of Zionist activism in a very significant way. And on a related note, I think in a meta sense, finding and amplifying these kind of individual stories and voices, like in these two examples that we're speaking about, is part and parcel of the call to action of writing this kind of bottom-up history. Uh, do you think that that's true? Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think this is a fair assessment, but I, I think that I'm not the only one that's doing that. I mean, um, regarding um, Jewish women's history in Central and Eastern Europe, there have been a number of really important works um, in the past years, um, and not only specific on uh, uh, Jewish women's history, but also um, works about Zionist activism, for example, in which um, uh, uh, women play an incredibly important role. I'm thinking about um, Tatjana Lichtenstein's book about Zionism in um, Czechoslovakia, for example. Uh, but uh, beyond that, I think that in the rewriting that is going on for now two decades or so, um, to an extent um, of the transformation of Central and Eastern Europe from the late 19th century into the interwar period and this question of challenging um, traditional conceptions of empire or nation, for example, um, that look more on social relations and so on, um, women play an increasingly important role in these stories. And it's, um, it's bringing to light not only how women were historically important um, in and by itself, but also by looking at them and their writings and their activism and their everyday experiences, we learn much more about the societies at large and about the movements at large, I think. Then as we move into discussing the content of the book more fully, um, let's begin by setting the stage for a conversation a little bit more fully, a little bit better. So can you explain to the audience exactly the time and place that we're talking about? Um, What are the key features of the time period that you focus on in this book, 1914 to 1920? And when we say East Central Europe, where exactly are we speaking about? Yeah, so the book begins with the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, and it looks at, well, Central and Eastern Europe, which mainly is the Austrian half of the Habsburg Empire. And 
the region and the regions that the Habsburg Empire and uh, Germany conquered from the Russian Empire during the First World War. One of the underlying assumptions is that this occupation so fundamentally changed relations on the ground, so fundamentally um, changed the possibilities for the Zionist movement and for political activism in general, that that it makes sense conceptually to take this region as a whole. So this is largely speaking um, from Lithuania to Vienna and from um, what is today Western Ukraine to um, Krakow and and, and, uh, Western Poland. So this is geographically um, the area that that I'm looking at, which is the main region of uh, Jewish life uh, at the time, with I think thirty around thirty seven percent of the world's Jewish population living in this region. With regards to the time period, then what are the big changes from 1914 to 1920 as we see really the dissolution of the major European empires into the era of small nation states? Yeah, thank you um, for that. The, for, well, the, the big first change is the outbreak of the war, obviously, and the and a situation where the war completely dominates all aspects of society with essentially within weeks, or in in some places like in uh, Lemberg, Lviv, Lviv um, in in eastern Galicia, within days. So. A complete mobilization of society, the recruitment of um, large swaths of young men, which are exactly the demographic of the Zionist movement, also, um, in this uh, and uh, the expulsion and persecution um, of uh, uh, millions of people in this period. With that, of following that, the the conquest of of la- uh, large parts of the of the kingdom of Poland and of um, of the Baltics by by mainly the German army essentially, um, with some Austrian help, is also creating a completely new situation on the ground. Again, we have the the deportations and the massive repression by by the Russian army initially, but then uh, we have to an extent in some regions an opening of. Uh, political possibilities uh, for for various political movements, including the Zionist movement, um, especially in what became the Generalgouvernement um, Warsaw, uh, the Warsaw General Government, um, and a new space, a new political space, essentially for uh, political activism um, that is created at the time. And there are there is another key occupation region, Oberost, which uh, to a large extent covers. Eastern Poland and uh, the Baltics. Um, and here it's um, mainly looking in Lithuania at the time, which then uh, in turn is an absolute military dictatorship um, by by the German um, by the German military, where again um, there are new possibilities and new new danger new dangers and new problems at the same time. And you have this transformation of the region, also Galicia um, being um, first partially conquered by the Russian army, then retaken by the Habsburg uh, monarchy, um, and the, the fundamental changes and the, the effects this has on the Jewish population. You have urban centers that are not directly affected by the fighting, uh, but are still affected by the war because of hundreds of thousands of refugees come there, like Vienna and Prague and so on. So all. Um, all the much of the region, especially for the Jewish community that lives in the uh, lives in the, in the region that is most heavily affected by the fighting, there are profound 
changes um, that are taking place and an erosion of uh, established social relations. There's mass hunger, um, starvation, the spread of disease, there's mass unemployment and deportation that's essentially in many regions living under military dictatorship or military occupation. And at the same time, this creates a space for new political movements, including the Zionist movement, to make their claim and to, um, su- to, to win support. And one of the reasons why they win support is because all structures and all social relations have disintegrated. Now there is a vacuum and there's, there's an opening for, for something new. That's exactly uh, the question I, I wanted to ask, actually. Yeah. Um, a major thread that emerged from this conversation that we're having, this topic of time and space and this Mm. period of really condensed extreme transformation. Um, The thread was that local sensitivity and changes in the power structure could determine what made activists successful or unsuccessful on the ground in their attempts to organize um, a mass Zionist movement. So I was hoping you could explain kind of the importance of local variance, how different power structures in different areas makes a difference to the success or lack thereof of Zionist movements um, on the ground. And perhaps you could do that through the two examples that we just talked about a little bit, which is the General Gouvernement Vorschau and also the Oberost. Um, How are these places structurally different? Um, You touched on that a little bit, but how are these structural differences um, important to whether or not Zionists were able to entrench themselves on the ground and make an impact or whether they weren't able to do that? So there are structural differences and there are local differences um, on a more smaller level. Um, talking about structural differences first, so the um, in, in the Generalgouvernement, essentially it's a, um, the Germans establish a civilian uh, regime that allows for a certain level of, of freedom um, for, for people, for various political movements to build support and um, to engage also quite quite openly politically in at least intercommunal um, affairs. Of course, they can't challenge openly challenge the, the, the occupation regime, but um, there is um, an opening and there is quite a flourishing of, of, of social and political life and in the press despite um, continuing censorship, but there, there's more openness there. So um, Zionist activists and other activists and their competitors like the Bund or the Volkspartei um, can quite openly struggle and quite openly present their ideas to the public, and um, for and there is also some 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 more possibilities for local self organizing. So, for example, in regard to welfare and relief work, um, in Oberos, in, in in the Generalgouvernement, it can be organized quite independently and quite um, in a uh, communally. And in contrast to that, um, Oberost. Uh, so the the region under the um, uh, command of of the German military is essentially it's really it's a, as uh, one historian um, called it a, a military utopia in Eastern Europe a German military utopia in Eastern Europe where virtually every aspect is like the the rules for picking strawberries for example is um, regulated by military decree really everything. So there is hardly any space, especially in the first years, for independent political activism, bringing people to much more desperate and much more um, small-scale forms of of activism and of of, um, um, uh, community building. 
An interesting difference is that in Oberost, German Zionists um, managed to win a position within the administration. So um, Sami Kronemann and Hermann Struck, um, two German uh, Zionist activists, actually uh, get uh, positions within the administration of Oberost and therefore can, to an extent, use these authoritarian structures in their own interests or in their very specific German Zionist idea and conception of what should change in regard to Jews um, or, uh, the, to the Jewish population of this region. Um, of course, this leads to conflicts, and of course, there are very different conceptions amongst local Lithuanian Zionists, for example, about uh, what uh, what proper um, government policy could be. But uh, in it's a very special situation because you have um, then a um, a role of some specific Zionist activists who actually manage to, to gain quite a lot of influence and at least on paper make uh, substantial changes. Like, for example, the recognition of the Jews as a nation is uh, happening in Oberost, while in, in most other regions it doesn't happen. The other kind of uh, variant uh, um, varieties is, is really on, on a local basis that can change sometimes from one town to the next. And this very often depends on what kind of activists are there um, how are they often their personality and how they are relating to the local community? How successful are they in, in raising funds and in, in building institutions and so on? Vice versa, their um, political opponents, uh, for example, um, the, the Volkspartei or the Bund, in, in, uh, especially in the Polish case. And this right. can really have substantially different outcomes um, uh, from, from one um, local um, case to another and that another aspect would be that uh, also the Zionist leadership attributes different imp- kinds of importance to different localities so when they are ma- they have to make strategic decisions of where to invest their limited funds so they decide um, for for usually for the bigger cities um, rather than for for smaller towns and so again actually uh, which can lead to to tensions and yeah Right. And so then in this kind of portrait of competition between Lithuanian Zionists and German Zionists and different local Zionist factions on the ground, uh, my other question to kind of round out the scope of our conversation and what we're talking about when we talk about the parameters of this book is what are the different types of Zionisms that we're referring to here? Um, What were the major organizations in play and what types, what strains of Zionism did they really focus on? So there on paper, at least, um, there are two big strains, or two big movements that play a role there. So gen- the general Zionist, like Zionism classic, um, so to say, um, that is the dominant group in the uh, world Zionist movement. And they're traditionally liberal and led by, by, by um, at least on paper again, um, by, by German Zionists. Um, another key um, role is played, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, by the Mizrahis, so the religious Zionists, um, and thirdly, the Poalition, so the socialist Zionist movement. But what they are actually focusing on and what um, and their differences is usually not as fundamental as it looks on or as, as they themselves would want um, to make it look like. And they're 
the big theoretical or ideological differences that exist between these various movements are very much blurred in the practical work that they are doing. So they're essentially all engaging in the same kind of work. They're all building soup kitchens. They're all um, building orphanages and kindergartens. They're all trying to save um, Jewish children who have been abandoned or are um, are on the streets. They're all trying to negotiate in some way with the authorities to to get a better um, better legal situation for the Jews. They're all trying to protect um, Jewish communities against anti-Semitic violence and so on. Of course, at the same time, because uh, they have different constituencies, they're under different pressures in the, in this case. So they uh, the the general the general Zionists, for example, are. Um, which in, in, in some cases, for example, in war, I have this case from Warsaw where um, apparently many um, uh, many teachers um, used to be members of, of the Zionist movement, of, of the general Zionists. They do put some emphasis in their relief work on specifically helping teachers and, um, and writers and so on. Um, the Mizrahi, for example, are not very happy when general Zionists are establishing secular schools and secular um, educational institutions. Again, on the one side, because of their, their, um, their religious and, and, uh, and ideological convictions, but at the same time, it's also because of the pressure from the constituencies. And uh, Poalition is uh, one of the more complicated cases, uh, if you will, in the sense that their members understand themselves to be both Zionists and socialists. And of course, the impact of the Russian Revolution, the subsequent revolutionary waves throughout Europe, is tremendous uh, on Poalition, up to a, a point where even some uh, are questioning whether Palestine is still necessary for the liberation of the Jewish working class. Yeah, this leads us really well into kind of the meat and potatoes of the book, which I suppose is a, a funny way to phrase this question, given the importance of feeding people <laughs> to your research. But um, you write about three main interconnected, interconnected types of activism on the ground. Um, and these are welfare, education, and self-defense. Can you sketch just a good, gen, uh, a good general outline for these three types of activism? First of all, all those movements are terribly concerned with not calling it welfare work and not calling it philanthropy, because this is what what they associate with traditional elite Jewish politics of relieving the pressure on the Jewish masses by giving them some handouts. Um, and Zionism in and by itself, in especially in the way that those activists understand it, is a rejection of this supposed solution to, to the suffering of the Jewish people. That their Zionism is saying, we are solving the situation, we are rescuing the people um, by self-empowerment and by eventually creating our own state in the land of Israel. But of course, what they're engaged in during the war is welfare work and is relief work, even, so, even though they would uh, not want to, to call it that way. And this is largely an, a response to the massive pressure on the, on the Jewish population. There's mass starvation, especially oh, in, in the first wave, especially um, uh, refugees who are fleeing the Russian army uh, to, to the west of the Habsburg Empire, um, who have completely destitute and where the public authorities are completely unprepared um, to support them. Um, then those activists have to step in and organize uh, help for them, not only because 
this is obviously the necessary thing to do. But if they wouldn't do it, they would completely isolate themselves from 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 uh, the main topic or the main issue um, that is faced faced by the Jewish population. And there is a process of nationalization there. So the the fact that the state is weak, or the fact that the state is incapable of of Fulfilling this this massive um, task um, opens a space for for other people, nationalists, not only Jewish but also Czech and German and so on and so on, um, to fill this void. To, uh, in Poland, especially, the situation is that when um, the German army conquers the region, there are first there are multinational aid committees that are being set up, and Jews are systematically uh, discriminated against by in these aid committees. Again, this is something that we know from other works like Tara Sacher's work on, on the Bohemian lands, um, where she phrased it as every nation only cares for its own. And again, here Zionists can step, um, have to step in, but they also can step in and say, okay, so we are caring for our own. We are taking care of um, the suffering uh, Jewish population by building soup kitchens uh, for the Jewish population, by building orphanages specifically for Jewish uh, orphans for Jewish children. Though, of course, in this case, in the case of orphanages, um, there is a much more ideological question to it. There's this huge fear that is moving um, all national activists throughout the region and beyond that if a child of the nation would be educated in a foreign language or by by people of a foreign for a nation and that they would be lost to the nation, which is one of the main motivating factors behind the, the relief work or the educational work for children, that on the one side they have to step in, so it's the pressure of the time and it's the pressure of the situation, and that on the other hand, uh, it's also a huge opportunity um, to bring children into contact with um, the ideas and with the uh, both their ideologies, but also um, the language, um, teaching Hebrew, for example, but also new pedagogical methods that they are employing um, at the time. One of the key factors that is coming in is the question, obviously, of funding. So these communities overall are completely impoverished. Um, most of them haven't been uh, wealthy before, or none of them actually have been wealthy before, and the war has ruined them. Um, essentially, so if we look at the communal record, the, the records of the Kahal in uh, in various places, I took Vuc as, as just a, um, a case study. We can see how they are completely depleted of funds and are completely incapable of facing this this massive um, social crisis. And other um, political movements, of course, also try to establish their own welfare and relief uh, relief institutions. And then is the question of where the money comes from. Um, one of the very specific um, situations in the in the case of uh, the general government, especially, is that the German occupation demands all money that is raised um, by donors in the United States or in uh, in other places to come in through Germany. So the it couldn't be sent directly to to the occupied regions. So it is needed a international or transnational organization with a network of activists and a network of, of people that could bring this money and, and welfare goods uh, into the region. And obviously, the Zionist movement is the perfect movement for exactly building this connection. And on the one side, this shows or this allows them to show how the Jewish nation globally or is actually a global factor, is actually something uh, that is 
holding together because of a shared feeling of national solidarity on a global level. And also on a very practical level, it gives them the money and therefore the ability to um, to build local welfare and relief institutions and therefore uh, gain support amongst the local communities. Just to, to, to add a quote there, so one, one, not all of the donors were, were happy with that. Uh, many, especially in the United States, were actually very concerned by the fact that in um, war-torn Eastern Europe, this relief money was used for, for political um, gains. So the one activist of the um, Joint Distribution Committee um, uh, wrote uh, from Warsaw, for example, that, quote, getting money means getting political power. Whoever can open another, another soup kitchen gets thousands more followers. Whoever can feed and clothe his children in school wins their families as supporters. Welfare activities have become a tool of political power, end quote. Again, this, I think this captures very much the, the dynamics uh, on the ground um, there. The third aspect, the question of self-defense and of, of uh, resistance, is actually part of a larger argument over the question of Jewish security as a whole. So this is very traditional um, take on the, the royal alliance, so that uh, the assumption that Jews have traditionally always supported the highest authority of, of the land and felt a spe- uh, specific, um, specifically close relation to, in the Habsburg case especially, um, the emperor. Now I'm looking specifically on on Habsburg Galicia is a is a regional case study, and I aim to question that because, like other citizens of the Habsburg Empire, the Jewish citizen citizens were failed by the state um, in regard to the uh, lack of accountability of the state, but also in regard to the uh, uh, um, protection, like simply physical protection, also the provisions of of, of food and so on. And this naturally forces activists on the ground to search for alternatives. And, so, and even more so in a situation where from especially in 1918 onwards, early 1918 onwards, anti-Jewish violence um, becomes ever more and more important. And on the one side, they are siding with other local factors, or other, lo- uh, other nationalists, for example, and make local alliances with them. And the other factor is that they're building self-defense organizations. And the earliest, earliest case that I could find was in April 1918, where um, uh, Zionist activists in, in Krakow uh, form a self-defense group and defend um, the Jewish quarter against uh, violent attacks. Um, but then especially from October, November 1918 onwards, we have throughout Galicia, especially Zionist-led, or in most cases Zionist-led um, Jewish militias, usually made up of um, former Habsburg soldiers, that are actively defending their communities against violence, or at least trying to defend their communities against violence. At the same time, this is not only a question of self-defense, but it's also a question of how is the Jewish nation positioned in a situation where the new order of the region is defined by violence. Where there's a regional, essentially a regional civil war, and how how the region will look after it will be defined by whether people have guns and can fight for it. And Zionists are um, trying to 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 be a part of that, or they are forced to be a part of it. And for the Jewish community, of course, and for, for, their, for activists standing in these communities, it cannot be 
um, underestimated how important the experience was, especially in the few cases where self-defense was successful, um, how important this was for, for those activists standing in the communities. This really makes an absolute political breakthrough for them. Right. So as we're talking about how these kind of three main forms of activism, welfare, although they were tepid to call it welfare, um, welfare, education, and self-defense gave the Zionist movement really the in to create a mass um, political movement for the first time. I think it's worthwhile to put also the scope of Central and East European Jews in the scope of their need in perspective. So here I just wanted to mention some of the statistics that you brought into the book, which I think illustrate the point and really hammer home just the degree of need and why it was that these three types of activism ended up being so potent and so powerful for people on the ground. Um, in January of 1915, an emissary from the Hilfsverein der Deutschen Juden um, reported that 340,000 of the uh, city's 500,000 inhabitants depended on some form of welfare just in order to survive. Um, by percentage point, that's a full 68% of the population. In another instance, um, a Zionist activist described the sad situation in Vilna, uh, stating that of the city's 55,000 Jews, 45,000 of them were on desperate need, um, were in need of aid just to get 100 grams of bread and 110 grams of pearl barley a day. So again, in terms of percentage, that's 82% of the population struggling to get what is roughly the equivalent of three slices of bread and three-fourths of a cup of cooked grains. I think that these figures really clarify one of the central um, insights of the book, um, which is that Zionism became more popular in East Central Europe because Zionist activists could step in and provide basic essential services, like the ones that we were just talking about. And so, um, yeah, can you explain, I guess we already touched on this, but really to hammer home the idea of meeting basic needs and why it was that meeting basic everyday needs was so important to um, cultivating a mass movement, something with popular support. Yeah, ideas don't feed people. Um, and it's uh, essential for those activists to respond to the needs on the ground. And they do it by the, by the means that they have. So, for example, in Vienna, they're setting up um, a hospital because they have many doctors in their in their ranks they um and and, uh, and nurses they have um they're setting up an uh, an aid um or a, sorry a damage assessment um, bureau that gives them um, legal aid to to refugees because they have many lawyers in their ranks in uh, other places um they're also they're they're using their local skills or what what um, is available amongst members but the crucial thing is that they're responding to an urgent crisis amongst um, the population of mass starvation, there's one aspect that, um, uh, and also disease that comes from that, and uh, um, uh, uh, typhus um, outbreaks that are um, um, happening throughout um, the region during the war, and especially affecting the Jewish population in some regions. So they are, by responding to these everyday needs, to these um, dire, uh, in these very dire situations, they are showing that we are the ones who are actually delivering. We are not only talking the talk, we are actually helping the people. And this is especially important for Zionists because they have always been attacked and continue to be attacked at the time by other um, political movements, especially the Bund and the Volkspartei, that while the Zionists are only concerned with the future in the faraway land, so they don't really care about the needs of the people today. And by actually establishing soup kitchens, by building orphanages and so on, by organizing employment for people, 
they are showing so we actually care. We are the ones who are deeply connected um, with um, the Jewish population. And these are these are the crucial um, these are the crucial moments. Is even even later, even after the war, where um, new there, there would be so many more political possibilities um, for um, with lifting of censorship and and free party organizations and elections and so on. It's still the thing that concerns them in their everyday practice and the amount of time and money and resources that they use for the various things, the main thing that they are concerned with has to be relief work because this is the pressure that's coming from the population. Again, they continue to prove we are the ones who are delivering and they're answering this core question, I think, that is at the heart of not only every national movement, but every political movement in the end. So why should I join this movement? Why should I support this movement? How is this going to improve my well-being and on my community's well-being? They are making a concrete offer and, uh, there and, and proving that. Right. And then parallel to this movement from the big ideas of Zionism to the small struggles, as you phrase it um, in the conclusion in the book, parallel from this shift from focus from idea to deed, um, there's a shift in demographics of who is a Zionist. Um, most principally, I think we can note that in terms of gender and in terms of age. So let's start with gender, something that we already talked about briefly at the beginning of the interview. But how and why did the role of female Zionists grow in this period of East Central, in, in East Central Europe? And what does the form of activism have to do with why this kind of explosion in women's roles um, took off the way that it did? So in the... There are different, there are again, the local um, variations. Um, one important factor, especially in Habsburg Empire, is that the vast majority of uh, young men are drafted to the army. There are local organizations that are actually coll- completely collapsing, like the organization in Hungary essentially completely collapses um, because of that. And therefore, the organiza- there, there is somebody has to take over. And reluctantly, some of the older activists accept women as. I think one quote is like as temporary aides or temporary supporters or something that actually playing some role. Um, so this is one aspect. But the more important second aspect is this shift in work and the shift of um, uh, the more central role that um, welfare and relief work and education um, actually become. So in this form of activism, which is continues to be quite gendered, so it's still a quite um, strict separation between who is doing who is doing the hard work on the ground to a large extent, and who is um, the chairman of an institution. Chairman um, emphasis there. This continues to be the case, but because it is this grassroots activism that is becoming the dominant. Uh, field and the dominant form of Zionist activism, by default, women's roles, uh, women's role is, is, is getting more important uh, within the movement. So when there are no elections, there are no uh, only restraint uh, for, for with male suffrage. The big male speakers and candidates lose importance in a relative sense um, compared to um, those people who are um, um, predominantly women who are doing work in, for example, orphanages or soup kitchens and so on. That's not to say that men didn't also engage in this kind of work, but it continues to be um, quite uh, um, quite gendered. It's also they continue to, um, in their, especially in their educational um, institutions and in their 
um, professional training um, that they are trying to engage on, they still they, they continue to um, have quite gender segregated um, forms of, of work. So, for example, uh, of training. So, for example, boys are trained to become mechanics uh, and the like, and, and women are um, trained to become dressmakers um, and so on. But still, it's an overall, it's a, it's it, the, the, the deep changes, even if, if the people don't want to admit it to themselves. So one case is the, um, are the agricultural training farms. So where initially women are admitted to become, quote, suitable wives for future farmers, end quote. But this is on the surface. And in reality, there are quite a few women um, um, there that, uh, um, that uh, gain this training and they are um, uh, in the future to become um, farmers and working the soil um, in, uh, in in Palestine. But I think the third aspect, and that is the is the most important one, is that throughout the region and throughout the various um, national and political movements, we see a mass politicization of young people overall, and especially young women because of the experience of the war. And we're seeing that internationally uh, in those periods, which leads to many of the or social transformations that we are then often associating with the 1920s, but are actually already happening during the war. And I think one big experience for for young men and women, um, and especially young Jews uh, throughout Eastern and Central Europe, is this experience of this old world is not good enough anymore. This old world has failed us. This old world um, has led to this destruction, to this catastrophe and all this violence and so on. And therefore, there's a, a spirit and a sense of rebellion against um, this very old order that is directed very often against the state itself and against all in, uh, old forms of living and of old forms of, uh, of, of doing things. But it's also very much internal. It's um, challenging the old established um, elites within the Jewish communities. It's but all, it's also challenging um, the old established elites within the Zionist movement. Something that they are uh, very often not um, that happy with, and of course this leads um, to to conflicts. And it's also important to note that these um, young activists, um, male and female, they have a, very often a different understanding of what Zionism is, because the kind of Zionism they grew up with is or politically grew up with, is this um, form of grassroots activism that they are experiencing during the war. And it's not the many Zionist congresses and big speeches and Herzl and so on and so on um, that had um, formed um, so much the, the generation that came before them and that uh, still dominated the organizations at the time. Right. That's really critical. This um, This generational change, this youth rebellion is also very much tied to a rebellion in which Zionist ideas matter. As you're mentioning, we're kind of seeing a shift from the elite, more abstract ideas of what Zionism can be to what Zionism needs to be on the ground in order to suit Jewish life today, which I think you could even make a claim is really the original purpose of Zionism anyway, which is to serve Jewish life, to protect Jewish life in some sort of manner. But my question here is, given that there was a shift in what Zionism meant and how Zionism was important um, what ideas and what themes did the young activists take from the big idea of Zionism writ large? And what made these ideas competitive um, in the wartime and post-war um, Eastern Central European context? So one thing that, that listeners might uh, have registered now is that Palestine actually play, hardly plays a role in the story that I'm talking about. And I think this is quite typical for that situation. Um, during the war, where not only is it 
impossible or impractical to to go there. Uh, but also in the activism of people, it just doesn't play a um, a real uh, role in, uh, for them because they're concerned uh, with other questions. In regard to this youth revolt, it's um, what they are taking from Zionism are very different things and uh, locally very different. So there are some who especially, so I'm talking about that in regard to Galicia, um, where there is this experience of the pogroms, uh, which very often happen at the situation, I think like a week or two weeks or so before those young people themselves and many others and many and Zionists, of course, had celebrated Polish independence, for example. And this is what follows. So this is a massive blow for them. And then they, many of them um, turn towards ideas of Palestine and turn towards ideas of emigration. They see that in this new state that is created here, um, there is no place for us um, and we have to... to create our own, we have to, to, to go um, to the land of Israel. For other activists, um, for other uh, young people, it's a question of um, the, the things that are um, that they are taking from, from Zionism are a question of just national solidarity. Again, it, this, ref, this is reflecting ideas that, are, that they are observing um, amongst other um, political movement. And we, we do see this um, youth um, activism in, in regard to, to the Polish national movement, for example, in this period, or, or the Czech um, national movement in this period. So they are uh, very much reflecting that. Um, in other cases where, there is, where the political scene is more dominated by or workers' revolts um, in this period, many of the young people are looking towards um, the big experiment that is happening in, in, in Russia and are thinking about exporting this um, to, to the West. And of course, uh, in this case, they're very often um, establishing very close contacts with um, activists of Polizion, um, there who are playing an active part of and sometimes uh, punching way above weight um, in their local um, situation, in, in their local circumstances in Vienna, for example, or in some regions um, in Poland. So it's a pick and choose um, to a large extent, and they're taking different aspects of Zionism. What is crucial, and, and not only different aspects of Zionism, but also different aspects of different Zionist movements and, and strands and, and ideologies, um, and so on, and are happy to combine that with other ideas, for example, with Yiddishism. So there's a very big conflict between uh, many of the, especially younger people from more humble backgrounds, and their um, Yiddish uh, ideas, um, and, or their idea that, that Yiddish is the, is the national language of the Jewish people, against the old Hebraism of of the old established um, leadership of the Zionist movement. So there are massive conflicts involved there. But uh, one common thread that we are we can observe, I think, in, in uh, throughout the region is that it's a revolt against um, the old order and within the community, within the movement, and within the state. Again, what uh, uh, reflecting, I think, what I said before, that this is um, following an experience of this, um, the old way of doing things has let us down. The, yeah. Then one of the bigger, more abstract questions I have about this book is um, in the book, you do a lot to challenge kind of these significant mythologies that still exist in Jewish studies. Uh, the most obvious of these, based on the premise and the title of the book, is the traditional narrative of how we think about Zionism. But I was particularly fascinated um, by how you address something that we touched on briefly already, 
um, which is a different master theme in Jewish studies called the what's well, the theory of Jewish politics that scholars refer to as the vertical alliance or the royal alliance. So again, for listeners who might not be familiar with this concept, in very basic terms, the vertical alliance posits that Jews across centuries and throughout the world ally themselves with non-Jewish powers, um, whether they be kingdoms, caliphates, empires, or states, as a strategy to secure protection and autonomy. Uh, Typically in this model, Jews do not attempt to, nor do they succeed in establishing horizontal ties with other non-ruling groups in a society. But as you showed in this book, um, Zionists near the end of the First World War, and especially in the interwar period, did try to establish horizontal ties with other small nation nationalist groups in East Central Europe. And uh, what's more, in the framing of their activities and their framing of welfare, education, and self-defense, Zionist messaging very closely resembled that of other national movements, which is something you were just talking about, of kind of these general themes that you can trace, not just in Zionism, but amongst all of the movements that are active in this period and in this place. So what is going on here in terms of this move to try and establish horizontal ties? And how do you think it challenges this idea of the vertical alliance as a model? The Royal Alliance has been has been challenged, or the idea of a Royal Alliance has been challenged um, quite a lot in, in, in recent works, explicitly or implicitly. So much of the work um, that is related to um, interwar um, Polish-Jewish politics, for example, ex- explicitly challenges that um, with... Um, which is because it's so obvious also on, on an electoral level and the alliances between um, the, ver- the, the, the various Jewish parties and other minorities parties um, in the elections for, for the Polish parliament, where it's quite obvious. But it's also um, beyond that, um, I think this is, has been challenged um, quite substantially. The interesting question is, especially in the Habsburg Empire, where there continues to be a very strong myth um, both in historiography and in popular culture and popular memory, that there has been a very specifically close bond between the Jews and the Habsburg Empire and especially Franz Josef and, uh, and uh, the emperor itself. And this comes in a situation, or, or uh, I think recent scholarship has challenged so much this idea um, the dynamics about the decline of the Habsburg Empire and the collapse of the Habsburg Empire and explaining the collapse of the Habsburg Empire by the fact that the state has failed its citizens. And this has so far not really been extended to the question of the Jewish citizens, where this um, this idea still continues that, well, because they had um, no alternative in the form of another nation or of a nation state that could be formed, they had to stick to the empire to the very end. And I think this is, um, with some local exceptions, um, not really evident, and especially not in Galicia, because um, the empire fails the Jewish population completely, and they are incapable of protecting them. They're incapable of um, of supplying them with enough food, like they are incapable of supplying others with food. Um, they're not willing to protect them against um, anti-Semitic defamations. The state authorities um, themselves very often... Um, engage in, in open anti-Semitic um, um, uh, proclamations and policies, actually. And this naturally forces um, local Jewish communities to search for alternatives, not because of big theoretical considerations and their, their um, strong or less so strong um, feelings about the emperor, but because there has to be an alternative. They have to do something about that. And for the importance of the Zionists is that while they 
had a good relation or, or tried to have a good relation to, to the imperial state before that, and of course always argued um, for the recognition of uh, the Jewish nation as all the other nations of the empire, at the same time they had always insisted that Jews are only safe and are only strong and are only um, uh, that Jewish life is only possible if, if Jews rely on themselves, if they are becoming self-confident, self-organized, um, and, and make a self-confident claim, uh, p- political claim. Um, and also um, um, said the deeds. And this is where this um, this policy of self-defense is so important on the one side and the other um, being um, uh, horizontal alliances. And these horizontal alliances, I mentioned that um, before with, uh, with, with the interwar period in Poland, for example. And of course, the fact that they are reflecting um, the experiences of other um, political movements at the time, especially other national movements at the time. But it's also a very important local experience for people. So one of the things that I, um, where I think I'm trying to make a contribution here is to a bit rethink the dynamics um, behind the, the anti-Jewish violence that is happening in especially East Galicia um, after the end of the fir- immediately after the end of the First World War. Because the first reaction of locals, Poles, Jews, uh, Ukrainians, is not to kill each other, but the first uh, instinct that people have is to cooperate. So in Przemysl, where um, the first thing they do is to form a um, joint government, joint city government made of Polish, Ukrainian, Jewish nationalists with a Polish, Ukrainian and Jewish militia controlling um, respective areas of the town. It is only then when outside forces come in who have a different agenda and who don't care about um, what the what the locals think, whose agenda is to implement the a homogenizing ethnic nationalist vision of a Ukrainian and especially of a Polish state, but then these, these local um, alliances collapse, disintegrate, and what follows are terrible pogroms and terrible persecutions um, against the Jewish population. So again here, I think that this local experience um, might shed a different light um, on um, the wider and the bigger stories that we are telling ourselves about this transition of Central and Eastern Europe. Right. It, it was so fascinating, kind of in um, this rethinking dynamics that you just mentioned. Another one of the myths that emerges from your treatment of the Vertical Alliance is that this idea that European nationalist movements, the small ones, are somehow innately or immutably anti-Semitic is something that the evidence doesn't bear out. Um, that was one of the really the more interesting insights is that in the immediate post-war period, what you see is not just an absolute explosion of anti-Semitism that has been waiting or that was latent in some sort of way, but that really it was outside forces that caused that. And people's first instincts are more along the lines of what we're talking about when we talk about welfare, but meeting basic needs and protecting the people in their communities. Um, another question about the content of the book before we start to bring the interview to a close is that in the last two chapters of the book, you transition from um, the war itself to the interwar period. And so what are the big changes that take place in this move? Um, And in particular, how did the revolutionary zeal of the Russian Revolution um, change Zionist activism on the ground, um, especially in terms of doubling down on the mission of changing the European political landscape and moving away from these um, literal goals of emigration to Palestine? So I would, I'm suggesting in the book that there are two promises of emancipation. There's a promise of um, revolutionary emancipation that's uh, coming from Russia and this uh, of a revolutionary emancipation of everyone 
every worker at least, or every toiler or whatever, um, um, regardless of nation or creed. And there's another one of national emancipation that is um, proclaimed on the one side by the great powers after the war, and on the other side, most prominently in the Zionist case, by the Balfour Declaration in 1917, a promise of national emancipation and a new world order um, that is based on nation and where every nation should have its own state and its own place um, and so on. And these two promises and uh, their implied challenges of course, are very important for the Zionist movement and for, for local Zionist activists and how they are reacting to that. To first address this question of the of the of the Russian Revolution and um, and the events today, they do represent, especially for young people, the the challenge to the old order that they had waited for or that they wanted um, to see in the world. And many um, young activists, um, mainly from Poalition, but um, definitely not only. So there are also many general Zionists who are actually um, very sympathetic to the Russian Revolution. Um, they are taking up this this uh, um, idea of revolution and are, um, uh, are trying to export them to the West. So there are uh, many... Um, uh, activists who we see first in, uh, in in welfare institutions and so on, who are now being elected to workers' councils, um, and who are um, holding the red flag high on on the Jewish street. Now, of course, this revolutionary proposal of emancipation implicitly challenges or can challenge the idea of national emancipation. So there are some activists. Um, who are so engaged in the revolutionary movement that they are actually questioning, okay, so if if the world revolution is now imminent, if the liberation of all of mankind is now imminent, what do we need Palestine for? We didn't uh, advocate Palestine because of um, some some romantic ideas of, about the nation. We advocated it because it would be... would. Um, um, uh, uh, rescue Jews from from the persecution in Eastern Europe would improve um, their um, their their stand their um, their economic situation and so on would let them thrive just as other nations will thrive. So this is one aspect. The other aspect that is actually eventually more salient in this region is that of nationalism. The first thing here is that I looked at the Balfour Declaration and this still prevailing idea that the reason for Zionism's breakthrough during the First World War is the Balfour Declaration. I didn't really see much evidence for that on the ground. So it's not really reflected in any of the sources or in, in many of the sources. It's actually quite fascinating how in quite a few diaries who are, that are covering that period, the Balfour Declaration is just completely absent. It's not mentioned at all. Um, and it also doesn't really have much of an impact um, on the ground in most places. There are some um, local um, exceptions, to be sure. But uh, the other factor that is really having an impact is the is the idea of reorganizing Central and Eastern Europe uh, according to national lines, um, where every nation should have its state. Of course, people were at the time living in essentially multinational societies, and the states that came out of the war were just as multinational as the empires that they had replaced. Uh, but for, for Jews, of course... Um, this was a very, very challenging situation in the situation where now the state was defined by nations. So what would be their place in it? And what they are doing, and without exception, essentially, is that they're arguing for a form of autonomy. Um, and not only autonomy, but essentially they're arguing for making those new states states of many nations. So in Lithuanian case, for example, when they're addressing the Lithuanian national movement, they don't even use the name Lithuanians, they say Litvina, um, meaning that 
then there would be no nominal um, nation in the state called Lithuania. There would be the Litvina, there would be the Jews, and there would be the Poles and the Belarusians and so on. And it's a vision of um, um, multinational um, living with with national autonomy um, that would be an implementation of of the Zionist um, um, idea of Jewish nationhood established in um, the diaspora, um, essentially. And this is what they're mainly arguing for in Central and Eastern Europe. This is really their main concern, is this um, institutions of the Jewish National Councils that are established um, uh, from the autumn of 1918 onwards alongside the Czech, Polish, Ukrainian, German, and so on and so on National Councils that are established um, throughout the region that are making a claim on behalf of their nation, whether the members of the nation wanted that or not, that we are now representing ourselves in a national form. We are speaking for the collective interests of all Poles, of all Jews, of all Ukrainians, and so on, on the ground. And therefore, we we are a, a, um, a factor that has to be reckoned with in the new settlement of the new order. And is this um, new form of organization where then the Zionists move from um, trying to speak on behalf of the nation. So they've always claimed, even before the war, they've always claimed that they were the ones who were expressing the true interests of the Jewish nation. They were speaking on behalf of the nation. But in some instances, especially in East Galicia, uh, for a short period of time, um, for, for several months, they actually came into a position where they spoke on behalf of the nation, where when other nationalists or when governments or international powers even wanted to know the opinion of the Jew, of the Jews in place X or place, uh, place Y, they would address the Jewish National Council was dominated by the Zionists um, at the time. So it's the, the furthest that they actually came to really fully to, to fulfill like this this national claim of we are speaking with one voice, one unanimous claim of we are a nation, we are therefore entitled to auto- to to um, specific rights in a new state of mo- uh, of many nations. Of course, these concepts um, collapsed um, with the um, implementation with the. A military power on the one side um, of the um, bigger ethno-nationalist um, nation uh, or in state-building projects. At the same time, also they collapsed because of the um, role that the great powers um, played in this period. But this again, this is a key moment um, in the the, the um, development of the Zionist movement that also. I think allows us to get a glimpse onto what changed role they suddenly play on the ground. So it's not only a claim anymore, but they're actually in many places, not everywhere, definitely not everywhere, but in many places they actually came in, come into a situation where they managed to um, represent and lead the nation. Great. I think that brings us really nicely to this idea, this full circle idea of what is the nation in play here in this book, right? Like, what is the national unit that these Zionists were trying to make and what was the expression that that ultimately took took form in what was the shape of it by the end of the um by the end of the first world war and into the interwar period when you see zionism really for the first time as a mass popular movement amongst jews um before we bring the interview to a close i want to make sure that there's nothing about the book that i forgot to ask about um is there anything that you want to discuss that we haven't had the chance to chat about already um well, I mean, it's a like three hundred something page book. So, <laughs> no, um, so in short, yes. <laughs> yeah, but um, um, I think that um, readers um, are. Well, I don't want to spoil the rest of the book. Let's put it that way. 
Right. Okay. I think that's fair. That's a good uh, pitch to go and read the book for yourself, right? <laughs> Listeners, go and go out now. And uh, with that, I guess, um, what is next for you in terms of research projects? Um, what can we be on the lookout for? So I'm currently based um, at the Birkbeck Institute for the Study of Antisemitism in London, and I'm working on a new project that to an extent um, builds on what we've already spoken about um, in regard to one chapter in the question of self-defense and these Jewish militias that popped up after the First World War. And I, again, want to put this one aspect into a broader and wider um, context. So the idea is now to write um, about for the next few years um, on a project and a new story of Jewish armed self-organization and self-defense in the long 19th century. So essentially what we know and what many, many wonderful colleagues have written about the, uh, the importance of Jews being drafted to the armies of imperial states or nation states and how important that was for their emancipation. But I think that especially um, in Central and Eastern Europe, since at least um, the, the second partition of Poland, we see another trajectory this popping up every once in a while. And that is Jews organizing themselves in armed units to take part in uh, the violent transformations of the regions. In some cases, like in um, the Kuczycko uprising um, in, uh, in Poland and uh, Berek Yosilewicz, um, uh, Jewish regiment, or in the 1830 uprising in Warsaw, it's about the Jews making a distinctly uh, their own contribution to Pol um, to uh, um, a Polish uprising and Polish defense. In other cases, like in 1848, we we see something similar in Hungary. We see then in uh, in in other cases Jewish militias defending communities against pogroms. Again, this is uh, uh, most prominently in 1905, but then also leading um, towards the, the violence that is shaking Central and Eastern Europe after uh, the First World War. And I believe that there's another trajectory of, of, uh, of struggle, of, of armed emancipation, um, so to say. Not um, by over that, that uh, Jewish armed units could overthrow a government or anything like that, but that a certain group of people are making a decision to say we are contributing, we are either contributing to this um, uh, military efforts by ourselves as Jews, as Jewish units, or we are defending our communities um, against violence, or both, um, of course. So um, that is a new story, that is a new project. That sounds fascinating. I look forward to reading that book. Um, I'm sure I'll enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed reading this one. And with that, I want to say thanks again for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was absolutely wonderful.